0: how do you find your first paying customers how do you come up with good ideas and then how do you pick the right one to work on how do you create compelling content that drives tens of thousands of customers to your website i'm Corlin allen and this is the Indie hackers podcast and today i'll be talking to chris chen about all of these topics chris is the founder of instapainting.com where you can upload a photo, and in a few weeks, you'll get a hand-painted canvas in the mail done by a real artist. I did a text-based interview with Chris back when I launched ND Hackers in August, and it was one of the first interviews to really explode in popularity on the site. It was number one on Hacker News for a day or two in October, and shortly afterwards, Chris and I sat down to record this episode. The reason Chris's interview was so popular was that he was a great example of someone finding creative ways to overcome what are some of the bigger challenges that ND hackers commonly struggle with. Chris is a super scrappy guy, and just to give you an example, he was in debt before he started Instapainting, and then he created his business as a means of getting himself out of debt. Two and a half years later, he's averaging $32,000 a month in revenue as a one-man operation. I'm really excited to have him on for this episode of the Indie Hacker's Podcast, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Just wanted to give a quick shout-out to Product Manager HQ. If you're an Indie Hacker... Who's looking to build better products that people actually want to buy? Go join the world's largest product manager community on Slack over at ProductManagerHQ.com. The community has thousands of product people around the world chatting daily about best practices for building amazing products. Once again, that's Product Manager HQ. What's up, Chris? Welcome to the show. Hi. Yeah. uh, Thanks for having me here. Yeah, no problem, man. It's you and I go way back since we met in Y Combinator back in January 2011, and you also did one of the very first text-based interviews for Indie Hackers back in August, which has since accumulated, I think, more page views than any other interview that I've ever done.
1: Yeah, I had no idea the uh, the uh, my uh, previous interview was the most popular. I, I don't think uh, it's not even the highest revenue one on there. So
0: yeah, I, you're right; it's not. Uh, I think you're averaging $32,000 in revenue per month, which is not the highest on the site, but it's also not chump change. Uh, but part of the reason I think your interview is so compelling is how you've handled growth. You've done a lot of cool and creative content marketing projects to drive traffic. And on top of that, the idea behind Instapainting is also super simple, and I think that's inspiring to, to developers and entrepreneurs. So can you tell us in your own words what Instapainting is and how it works? Well, um, for for the average consumer, it's a way to get oil
1: painting or custom artwork done by an actual artist uh, in their home and uh, shipped to you. And uh, all you have to do is provide them uh, a photograph. It can be as easy as providing a photograph or uh, sending, you know, multiple photographs and asking for something slightly more complex, like swapping heads or changing backgrounds. But it allows you to get custom artwork from an artist.
0: And how does Instapainting work exactly? Like, let's say I've got a photo of me and I want to get it turned into a painting. What exactly do I need to do? Do I just upload it to your site and you take care of the rest? Or is there any other responsibility on my end? And what does the end-to-end process look like on your side of things? How do you coordinate with the artist? And how do you make sure that my painting gets made and shipped to me?
1: All right, so what do you have to do? the, the, The easiest way you to get a painting is to just upload a photo uh, that's exactly or a design or a picture that's exactly how you want it to look already Um, and it can be a crude photoshop if you have something customized but uh, the artist will smooth it out but just have the picture uploaded and then the the painter or the artist will paint uh, or draw it exactly as depicted in the picture and then You'll you'll just get it at your shipping address
0: within about three weeks. Oh, wow, that's and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about your idea being just so simple and, and unique at the same time. Most of the companies that I've interviewed for ND hackers are pure software companies, you know, but you've got artists and you have shipping, you've got all these photo uploads and so much going on behind the scenes, it's just a lot more complex than most of the companies that I talked to. And yet you managed to make it work as a solo founder and you managed to do incredibly well for yourself. Um, so how exactly did you come to build this business? How do you, how do you handle the complexity and what have you built to help you manage all of these artists? When I first started, it was just manually, uh, brokering and managing the transactions. So
1: that's how it worked initially. And then just over time, more and more things became delegated to a CPU. For example, at first, we I think I always, if I remember correctly, I always had some sort of basic interface that allowed the artists to check uh, the orders online. But initially, there was no messaging system or anything like that. So basically, customers would have to email us pass any messages and then we would have to tell the artist and then we would have to also try to make sure
0: they're on schedule. So that's that's interesting because it sounds like you're saying that customers can directly message the artists. and I'm curious like what kind of messages do customers have to send to artists?
1: Uh, it ranges from anything from you know what's the status to uh, changes that they want to make because we allow unlimited revisions.
0: Okay, so so customers can see what the painting looks like before it's shipped to them, and then they can request changes using your platform.
1: Yeah, yeah. From from the get-go, there was always some amount of uh, web technology involved. Uh, It was never completely manual. But uh, from the start, there was at least a a page that let you see the picture once it was completed uh, from the artist. And then there was... uh, Administration interface for the artist to leave the orders that they have, and then uh, you know upload a picture. So that was always there from the beginning, um, uh, but that there, there was some manual overhead in facilitating communication between the artist uh, until a messaging system was introduced, um, so that we didn't have to go back and forth like that. Uh, there's no need because ultimately we would just
0: be just we pass the message as is. Okay, cool. So, hopefully by now most people um, understand what InstaPainting is and how it works. And I want to go back now to kind of the beginning of how you started InstaPainting because today you're incredibly successful. You're on track to do $400,000 in revenue as a single founder this year. Um but things weren't always so rosy for InstaPainting. I, I believe correctly, when you first started, you were in dire straits financially. You were at a point where your previous business hadn't been doing that well, and you were in debt, and you needed money, and Instapainting was kind of your answer to that problem, which is crazy, because when most people need money, they get a job, you know, they take out a loan, and your answer to needing money was, let me start this business that's immediately profitable. So... Can you tell us a little bit that, little bit about that process and how you started instabating? Well,
1: I raised money from Y Combinator after Y Combinator. But it, it was pretty soon after, maybe like three months after YC, that it was pretty clear that I needed to pivot to something new. So from the funds that was raised, I just spent an absurd long, absurdly long time, maybe about two years or so, um, just pivoting and trying out new ideas. And in hindsight it was probably a waste of time. but as I ran lower and lower on cash um, I would my ideas would start focusing more less and less on uh, you know social music and more on uh, how to generate revenue immediately and then eventually I ran out of all the cash and I also had credit card debt and and that's when uh, you know one of the uh, potentially cash generating ideas uh, is to was launched and it was uh wasn't a complete failure uh, and that being said uh, it didn't it wasn't like oh holy shit it's uh you know bringing in so much money on day one it was um within, in the first three months or in the first year it was probably only if i took all the profits for myself as salary it would have only been like a
0: 40 or fifty thousand dollars per year salary in the first year That's funny that you say only 40 to $50,000 salary the first year, because I've talked to a lot of founders of, of businesses and a lot of of entrepreneurs who are aspiring to create something like this. And most people can only dream about having that kind of success in their first year. It's, it's really a huge accomplishment. It's amazing that you were able to, to do it. I
1: guess, but I
0: was focusing full time on it, which meant that there was no other salary that I had. And, uh,
1: and also, this is in the Bay Area, so we're comparing this to a 140k starting salary for group.: It's like, yeah, it's like you know uh, if I'm only making 40k a year, I could just get a job as a software engineer and, right but um, I
0: didn't want to do that, so I just uh, I just hope for the best and kept going. yeah I have kind of the same mindset as you, I suspect like i I personally have never had a full-time job at any tech startup or company or otherwise like I've always been self-employed or working on my own startup is, is that the case for you um yes
1: I've never had a I've never had a job actually yeah I mean oh, I when I was in YC I had just quit college so I hadn't even gone into the job market yet, or hadn't had the opportunity to go in the job market it's just how it happened I mean obviously if this if instant failed and I ran out of money it would probably I would have had, to, had to gotten a job.
0: And speaking of money, let's go back a little bit and talk about the period after YC. Because you had done YC and then you spent years just coming up with idea after idea, trying them out, and moving on to the next one. But eventually you started running low on money. And would you say that revenue pressure was what allowed you to come up with better and better ideas over time? I would say better ideas, but ideas that would be less you know, idealistic. Uh, and more focusing on revenue. Do you think having that revenue pressure, like that absolute need to make money, is, is what made it possible? Like, Do you think you never would have come up with the idea for instant if you weren't under that situation, or were there other motivating factors?
1: Uh, yeah. I would not say never have come up with that idea. I guess it would just probably would have taken a lot, lot longer. You know, when you have other people's, or when you have enough money to cushion you, you don't really have to mm-hmm. think about problems. Like revenue.
0: Yeah. It's very apparent when you look at some of these uh, more well-funded companies. You see them branching out in every direction because they have so much money in the bank that they're not constrained. They're not under any pressure to make money.
1: Yes. Because it, uh, it insulates you from signals that would otherwise prevent you from, you know, doing what's necessary. It's like pain. Without pain, you would just hurt yourself yourself constantly
0: without a lack of money you don't feel any pressure to make money so you just stumble around doing things that don't make any money don't make money and, and probably hurt you in ways you don't know because you have enough money to not care exactly and not to bash on companies that raise money i mean raising money gives you a lot of breathing room and it gives you the capital to grow a lot faster than if you're trying to bootstrap but at the same time like bootstrappers do have this unique advantage in that they're pressured to make money immediately. And if you're trying to be an indie hacker and your goal is not necessarily to become a billion dollar company, but to make enough money to provide for you and yours, then focusing on making money is crucial. And on that note, with Instapainting, because you were so low on money, you had to do a lot of things from the get go to make money immediately. How did you set up your initial product? How did yes. you make money right out of the gate with Instapainting? Um it was, a,
1: it was just a basic page. Uh, it said, what it would what do, we'll get you a painting. And the first type of painting we sold was called Mixed Media, which is actually a new product in the market. So there was already a bunch of old sites, like at least 10 years old, doing, brokering oil, oil paintings from particular Chinese companies. Uh, and they do these 100% painted oil paintings. So when we started, we actually introduced a new product that wasn't really in the market. It's called mixed media. It's printed and then painted, and we made that clear. It's called mixed media. And so because of that, it was half the price of an oil painting, and it was, you know, it would still look like an oil painting. And so it, um, in that, that took off. I don't know if the effect would have been the same if I had introduced. The same product as they do some competitors, which is oil painting, and then charge
0: the same price. Right. Uh, so where did your first customers come from?
1: I posted on Reddit's uh, subreddit called r slash startups. And it's a pretty small subreddit, but i would probably still full of people that try to try new things. But yeah, it's, it was a small subreddit. And, and generally, I never have any success posting on Reddit, but especially with something or trying to sell something. But that worked. I would recommend r slash startups.
0: You have to frame your thing. Your post is a startup. Yeah, yeah. Andy Hackers was on Ars Startups. I think the weekend that I launched back in early August, and it, it someone, some random person who I didn't know submitted it there, and it was it was a really good source of feedback and stuff. So I can see how it. Yeah, it's not very highly trafficked, I believe, but or at least it wasn't at the time. Uh, definitely
1: much smaller than Hacker News, but that's when it first started. That's when I first posted, and I figured if this this will you know it'll work. This wall here. Um, I I got a TechCrunch article later, and then I got, uh, you know, on Hacker News later, three months later. Early.
0: Cool. So I've got a wide variety of topics that I want to talk to you about today, and one of them we already kind of touched on, but I I want to go back and get a few more details because I'm sure a lot of people, myself included, are curious about how NCA painting works, um, behind the scenes, and aren't quite sure how it works. So if you go to the site, it's actually a marketplace. You're connecting. The people doing the paintings with customers like myself who are going to look for a painting. But as a customer, it doesn't seem like a traditional marketplace. From my point of view, as a customer, it seems like a store. So I just go in, upload my photo, and poof, some magic happens, and I get a painting back in the mail. But behind the scenes, you've actually got this entire user interface for painters to take requests and to communicate with customers and do all, sor- all sorts of stuff. So I'm curious, like, how did you build that, and how does Instapainting work? <laughs> Right, so like I explained
1: earlier, when it first started, it was some degree of technology and automation just because of my, of my background. And so one of the first things I did was create pages for the artists to um, set the status of their order, upload pictures, and view the orders that we have assigned them. Um, and who were these artists at first? It was just one supplier at, at, uh, when we first started. Okay. Well, you know, zero suppliers when I first started, and then, then I found one after uh, the sales were made. But... uh well, actually, the very first artists were my roommates. So they were painted in a USA. That was one of our selling points. So they 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 painted the first few orders at basically at cost. Um, and I even pitched in some work. Um, and we, we managed to bare, just barely ship those on time. You were painting? Um, yeah, well, so we, we were doing. These are mixed media. And. Um, we were doing them on the floor in our apartment, and I was painting. I was helping to paint uh, parts of it. Oh, cool. Because they're mixed media, it was mostly about uh, adding in texture. and Right. And, and, it's like and tracing, it, right? Yeah, kind of, like tracing. It's okay. Mixing clothes was still the hard part. But they would mix everything for me, and then I would just help uh, apply the paint. <laughs> Because we were under tight deadlines, I made
0: some crazy promises in the beginning. (laughs) Right, you sold something like two thousand dollars worth of paintings and had like a two-week delivery deadline, right? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was like two weeks at the
1: time. Now it's now we say three weeks, but uh, at the time I said two weeks. But that that was um, yeah. So it it was really expensive because printing it in San Francisco on canvas was extremely expensive. It costs more than it, it. It costs more to print on canvas in San Francisco now than it
0: does uh, from our marketplace of artists. Wow. Okay, so your first artist were your roommates, and basically that was just so you could fulfill this two-week deadline. But then eventually you went out and you found a supplier in China, and you've got the software that you made that you were talking about earlier uh, for the artist. What does this software do, and how did you train the artist to use it? Well, well, what... yeah just to clarify
1: uh, we uh after launching that when it was made by the artists uh artists some uh some artists from China contacted us and uh we started using them instead. Oh cool so you didn't even have to find them. Uh generally no the only time I had to find them was when Christmas hit uh, on the second year on the second year of operation and we didn't have enough um suppliers to fulfill Christmas orders. Because the second year was the, was
0: one of the biggest Christmas years. But yeah, uh, sorry, what was the question again? Yeah, you were talking earlier about the different types of software involved in running Instapainting. And specifically you mentioned that there's some kind of behind the scenes software that you wrote for the artist to use. So I'm just kinda of curious, what does that software do and what's it look like? Oh, it was just
1: expanding it was just expanding the, the current website. Yeah, and the, the the scope and functionality of it. Eventually, added messaging system. At some point, we also had a translation system, but uh, it was easier to just restrict artists. Because so many artists, just restrict artists—the ones that could speak English—for the time being. Uh, so this messaging system, and then we added, um, you know, just more features: automatic email notifications. Uh, we added a, a bidding system that uh, takes into account their customer rating uh, the price and the turnaround time, uh, so that it can be optimized, um, for the best artists based on those factors.
0: So the artists have all sorts of features, this entire behind the scenes ecosystem going on where they're messaging customers and bidding on the most promising customers. But from your customer's perspective, all of this is invisible, right? You never talk about this to any of them.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's completely irrelevant to the customer. Um, what technology is behind it, right? Um, and you know that's probably probably a common mistake by startups is to consumer start for consumer startups at least to try to pitch how they're different by going into their technology. But what's really important is the end result for the customer. That's why it, it isn't you know it wasn't important to make it known that it's a marketplace or whatever. I know everyone's trying to build a platform and a marketplace, and and uh, but it doesn't matter to the to the customer really what it is in the end is just, all right, um, you know, can I get this product that I want and
0: how easily can I get it? And you know, it's quality. Uh, those are the things that are important to the customer. Right. And what's important to you as a founder? Do you spend a lot of time focusing on automating things so you can spend less time right. dealing automation is,
1: yeah. Automation is important and it's uh, it'll get you there 90% of the way. Because there's always room for improving automation. Uh, But so for the 10% of the the people that aren't served by the automation or it doesn't work for them, we fill that in with customer service, where it would have previously, you know, for in the case of Google, those 10% are just forgotten. (laughs) They they provide a cheap product and absolutely no customer service. But uh, I I like to take Apple's ethos, which is to provide – the best customer service. And I don't know what level of automation they have behind the scenes, but um, automation is, is to provide, uh, you know, if we have to a manually fulfill the experience of helping you get a painting at the very least, and then use automation on our end to lower the cost for ourselves. Right. But then, you know, you, you can't just stick automation in and then just, just let it run by itself and just be happy with the 90%. Um, of the cases it works for. So anytime anyone has an issue with anything, we always respond within 24 hours. Uh, any issue that may be covered by our website. For example, a lot of people get confused by some UI occasionally, right? Um, we always help them and we just, we just, it doesn't matter how they use the website. They
0: aren't, the customer is never using the website wrong. Right. And that's what uh, I think is interesting about customer service. It's one of those, Mantras you hear in the startup world that delivering good customer service is important, but until you've been there and tried it, you don't realize just how hard it is. You get emails at all times uh, of the day and night, and part of good customer service is being able to respond to these emails in a timely fashion. I think you said you do yours in under an hour, but that's tough, especially if you're a maker and these emails are interrupting you know, your kind of uninterruptible time that you're coding or working on some project. And Also, to go back to what you're saying, pretty much no matter what the problem is, the customer is never at fault. It's always supposed to be your fault, and at least you need to treat it that way. And psychologically, for a lot of people, that's much easier said than done. So between these two issues, I think most people end up sucking at customer support, which yeah. is why being good at it is such a big and, differentiating factor. Yeah, and and
1: I had the I had the same attitude. I had that attitude before too, where it's like, all right, well, I built all this automatic technologies. Uh, you know, you should be able to use it. Or that uh, you know the the customer should should be able to to, to use the, the technology that's there. Like for example, there's there's a way to upload and talk to your artists. Occasionally, some people will still email us and ask us to forward a message for them, and we'll forward the message for them um, because somehow the customer doesn't realize right that you they can just type a message on the page, right? So we do that for them and then you know as far as automation goes we have to figure out well how how do we make it more easy to use because apparently some people are still getting confused oh yeah and uh, you can't uh, you can't do 100% of automation because there's always going to be someone who you know some who you didn't account for you know maybe someone who's blind for example or someone who is dyslexic or, there's a lot of cases where people there's a, lot of, there's, a, there's a lot of people uh, that you won't account for when using a set, or just randomly someone would just not see something, right? You can never account for 100% of the computer to fully know until you have like, some sort of general uh, intelligence to provide your customer support.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's a gap that automation can't fix because that's where it becomes, I mean, I guess that's where it becomes absolutely crucial to outsource things and to delegate like, tasks to other real people so you can spend less of your own time on sort of mundane processes and spend more time doing things that matter, uh, like focusing on growth or learning from customers, improving your product, etc. So what I'm curious about hearing is about how the automated parts of of Instapainting have changed over time. Because I know at the beginning, it was probably a lot more manual effort for you to run the site than it is nowadays. There's probably a lot of processes that were just rote repetition or that a machine could have done for you or that you could have outsourced to somebody else. Uh, You've been now able to automate away. So, what are some of the processes that you smoothed out over time to be able to give yourself more free time to work on what really matters? Most of the most of the um, most of it is just uh,
1: providing a a way to to communicate with your artists directly for things like revisions, for things like shipping information, because artists uh, all ship their their (laughs) paintings. And just providing the information that the artist would normally provide someone who orders and then making that uh, automatically surfaced on the website. So there's less, your emails asking about the status or whatever, right? Because we're in a small niche. We only do paintings is a fairly standard procedure. Um, and to, to find out what to automate, it's really simple, right? If you do it, if you're, if you're doing your business, you will know what to automate because, If you're doing the business, uh, as I said, where, you know, you, you, let's say you're doing oil paintings, then your primary goal is to provide oil paintings as ordered and provide the services that you promised to provide to the customers. And that should be your primary goal. And you should be doing that manually if you have no uh, automation, right? So if you're doing that manually, you will know what takes up most of your time and then just provide some sort of automation for the things that take up time, right? Software to handle things or to reduce the the task load for that specific subtask. You'll you'll see if you do that manually, And eventually you approach 90% automation. And at 90% automation, you'll still see 10% of the stuff that people are confused about. And then you just keep iterating and keep identifying what's taking up that remaining 10% of the time. What's the, What's the thing that's you know, coming in 10% of the time. Uh, Maybe people keep emailing about, uh, you know, tracking number. And so, uh, but even if your technology goes there and has displays a tracking number, it could only be 90% of the way. It could only covering 90% of people who see the page for some reason, right? Uh, So so you would have to think, uh, how can I fix that issue now? Uh, so, you would have to go and actually identify and look at it and advise and try to see why people ten percent of the people are not getting the tracking You're not understanding it in the ui so it 's an iterative process but as long as and that 's another reason why it 's important to, to fill in that ten percent with manual customer service because then you would actually it becomes your problem and you really feel you really feel it right like i'm i 'm a very lazy person. I don't like I don't like doing things manually. And yeah, I always dread it when I have to do something manually and I have to do some work. Um so when I funnel those customer service back
0: to me, it makes it really, really pressing for me to automate it away. Right, right. So so like today, for example, let's say you wanted to stop working on AnstiPating and you wanted to hand it off for you to sell it to someone else. Who would you have to hire to keep the business running? Would it just be a customer support person who, who knows the app inside out, which you need to hire developers? Like, what parts of the business are, are require attention from you in your day-to-day?
1: Yeah, you would only need a customer support person. Basically, handle high-level customer support like issuing refunds or uh, arbitrating disputes between artists and customers.
0: That's awesome to have gotten things so far. Yeah. So, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about another topic. Specifically, I want to talk about how you've grown Instapainting because I think finding customers is... A very important and obviously challenging problem, but you've been very diligent in identifying different ways to bring traffic to your site and grow your business and grow your revenue. And one of the things that you talked about in your text-based interview was SEO. You mentioned that for the first six months or I think maybe a year of InstaPainting's life, your growth was pretty stagnant and you weren't really doing anything on the SEO front until a friend kind of showed you the ropes. And eventually, you were able to get InstaPainting to rank number two or number one on Google for your desired keyword. So searches like photo to painting and stuff like that. Can you let us know what that process was like of learning about SEO and and improving your ranking? Yeah, we we rose uh, in the search results
1: gradually over the period of... Well, actually, it mostly happened in the second year, over, over the second year. And that's because that's when I shifted the focus to... SEO. Uh, it started with some basic HTML changes, but then it uh, grew into link building and content marketing. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still not an expert on it, and I still don't consider myself an expert on it. Uh, my friend Ryan Bednar, who now does a, a startup called um, Rank Science, yes, Rank Science. He gave me some simple tips, and then. Just been following his tips, and uh, the most important thing is just trying to get links in. That's the that's the you know the meat of SEO. It's hard because no, nobody nobody knows how Google's al- algorithm works, but link building is still should be the main thing. You get more people to link to your site about what your site is about, and uh, it'll boost your rankings.
0: Yeah, I should really know more about SEO, given that I run a content site. But in addition to SEO, and maybe it's tight end, is your content marketing strategy. You've done all sorts of cool, effective things to get people writing about painting and linking back to your site. For example, you made a painter robot that can autonomously replicate an artist's painting. You made a two-player version of the popular video game 2048 and got it to the top of Hacker News. And you even toured art factories in China and then wrote about your experiences. So you've done an incredible amount of really interesting stuff and turned them into awesome blog posts that have been linked to tens of thousands of times all over the web. So I'm curious, how did you find the time to do all of this stuff, and what's your day-to-day like?
1: Um, generally, those things don't take up too much time. It'll be like maybe one week or two weeks of full-time work. Uh, the longest was the robot, was, which was about two weeks of full-time work. Um, and... Yeah, and then I spend uh I spend uh time thinking about obviously what to do next. Um uh yeah, I mean the business is streamlined except for growth, right? And so the content marketing initiative is growth. So it's not necessarily taking business time off, the of business. It's the the things that I can spend my time on besides customer service, which doesn't take up that much time, but uh is, is Developing new features that automate more of the business or you know make it otherwise some somehow better, or you know marketing right so those are the two really those are the two things I think of my time marketing and new features. and so I just happen to spend that time you know a week or two weeks on marketing
0: yeah I'm, I'm jealous because I'm nowhere near that point at Indie hackers. I'm, I spend hours and hours every week probably just finding people to interview, editing and annotating interviews. Handling social media and answering emails, posting on the Indie Hackers forum, working on the podcast, etc. So really, almost all of my time is consumed by just doing the minimum necessary things to keep my business running. So it's hard to find time to spend on things like growth and new right. features. Right. Um, but I think that's one of the big challenges for being a solo founder. And I want to ask you, what's your experience been as a solo founder? Because I know you did YC. As a solo founder, and you've been on your own since then. And in fact, that was, you're one of the rare solo founders to even get into YC. So, what do you think are the unique challenges or advantages to being on your own as a founder? Um, I, I mean, I can do anything I
1: want. I've seen companies, you know, dissolve because, because of founder disputes. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of companies are structured in that there was like two equal founders, right? Uh, 50-50 split or two founders that really wanted to take the companies in their own directions. And there were a lot of company breakups and that would just destroy the companies, right? And so being a single founder, I don't have to worry about those things. I can make any product decision that I want uh, to my detriment
0: or to my benefit. Do you find that it's challenging not having a co-founder to bounce your ideas off of? You can bounce ideas off anybody. It doesn't
1: have to be a co-founder. As long as you have friends, Perfectly fine. Yeah, even then, I wouldn't focus too much on bouncing ideas off people that aren't going to pay you. It's still probably mostly a waste of time. You should just spend that time. And I think that's another benefit of a single founder. You can just spend more time and focus on just getting it something out there. You can ask the real world, the real audience that you're going to potentially have for feedback by letting them use your thing. And you can work a lot faster. There's less time spent making decisions, I'd imagine. I don't know. <laughs> I never made decisions collaboratively with
0: another person. But, so is this part of your, would you say this is like a philosophy that you subscribe to, that you should never have a co-founder? Or is there a situation, you know, maybe with events depending to fail, you started another company where you would consider working with somebody else and bringing on a co-founder?
1: Uh, no, yeah, I would try a co-founder, and, uh, but uh, it would definitely be in an non-equal, the, 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 the second person would, would have less equity or would have less uh, stay. Effectively the, the co-founder would be like cheap labor. It's just an invested, early, cheap labor.
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting take because the conventional wisdom is to just split the equity down the middle 50-50 every time, no questions asked. And that that is supposedly, you know, a helpful way to do things to avoid co-founder disputes. But at the same time, there's there's something to be said for people who recognize that, like, hey, maybe I'm in a situation where I'm contributing to the business full time and my co-founder is in school or has a different job or came on late, you know. and those situations, people aren't going to be happy for very long with a perfectly equal split. So I think it's worth considering doing things in this kind of unconventional way. But I want to move on to To talk about user growth and marketing. I want to change topics and kind of get back to what we were discussing earlier because I think it's something that a lot of people struggle with and a lot of people would love to hear your thoughts on um, specifically how do you avoid this, this trough of sorrow period, right? And so for those who are listening who don't understand what the trough of sorrow is, the trough of sorrow is this phenomenon where after you launch, you might get a lot of press on TechCrunch or Hacker News or Product Hunt, or maybe you don't, but after you launch, you end up with this long, sustained period of... Very little growth and very few users coming to your product or app that you built. And I'm curious what you did at InstaPainting to deal with that period, and and what your advice is for other people.
1: Yeah, so you have to look at when you're doing a startup. You have to think, oh, well, I can get, I can use the press as one of my one of my tools. But the press uh, press gives you gives you some traffic, but it's temporary, right? Uh, and you have to, you have to look at your tools that you can use to market. So there's one time press, which will give you a boost of traffic. That doesn't really help much because that's one time. Right. But another thing press does is also helps with you with SEO, right? Because it's a reputable site that links to you. Another thing that helps is one time traffic could potentially get other people to share and become viral. Right. And that almost 99.999% of the time never happens. And even if something goes viral, it's also temporary. You know, like Pokemon Go.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point you made about the SEO because I think a lot of people underestimate the SEO benefits they get from their initial launch and they just have no idea why they're getting an increased amount of traffic after their launch. But with Indie Hackers, I launched on Hacker News, which, as far as I can tell, doesn't have that many SEO benefits. And people aren't really searching Indie Hackers in Google anyway. But since launching then, I've continued to use Hacker News as like a major source of traffic. I try to get one or two interviews to the top of Hacker News every month, and I'm usually pretty successful, and it accounts for about half of all my traffic in total. Um, but in between those spikes of traffic from Hacker News, I spend a lot of time looking at Google Analytics and trying to understand exactly where my traffic is coming from, because those sources are a lot more organic, and they're a lot more under control. Uh, it's sources like my newsletter... There's sources like social media, Twitter, Facebook, um, people directly coming to the site, etc. So they're a little bit more of like a barometer of like how healthy the traffic is to ND hackers.
1: What's your breakdown from, you know, social LinkedIn or versus Google?
0: Yeah, I get about 50% more traffic from social sources like Twitter and Facebook and Reddit, not counting Hacker News, than I do from organic Google searches. Although organic Google search traffic has been growing pretty steadily since I launched yeah, because I'd say even social links in will die down. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. People sharing articles on Facebook and Twitter, those things don't last very long. At least they haven't for me. Um, but the good thing about ND Hackers is that mm. it's a content website. So effectively, I'm constantly adding new fuel to the fire. Every week, I have three or four different interviews that I'm putting yeah. out there, and more people are sharing them, as opposed to Insta Painting, where You've got a product or a service, right? People are Googling you because they actually want your service, but they're probably not yeah. constantly sharing articles about InstaPainting. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah. I, I, I've never found the case where, um, you know, people sharing, allowing people to share on Facebook, uh, having it go viral or having it, it sort of snowball. Um, so the the thing is like. One of the main things that people over rely on that I saw in our batch and when I was that was that do the launch and then, and then magically things will work out after the launch. Like, you know, once you just get enough critical mass, that's was the word that was used, critical mass, which is once you get enough people to uh, use your product, it'll start growing by itself. Then it doesn't, uh, it, that I've never seen that happen before.
0: Yeah. It's not a very common thing. And I think, it's just something that people should not rely on.
1: Yeah, you shouldn't rely on that. You should be able to rely on some way to get consistent traffic in, and those ways are SEO, paying for advertising, which which you can do, but you shouldn't do. <laughs> not for something that's a free product, at least. Uh, if you do advertising, you really have to spend a lot of time to optimize the ads so that it actually comes out positive for you. Because when you first start out doing advertising. On AdWords or anywhere, uh, it's you're blowing a lot of money just to see what works and what doesn't, and so you won't see immediate results with that. And so, that's for a paid product. If you don't have a paid product, you probably shouldn't be advertising.
0: I think uh, you've done a lot of advertising for InstaPainting.
1: No, I, I've, I've I've learned a lot about advertising. I I we don't uh, I don't think any ads are currently running now. In the beginning, very, very even beginning, I tried out ads and I noticed that if you put in like a few hundred dollars, that it's not enough to really optimize uh, for what text, what keywords actually convert and come out positive for you. So we stopped doing that. Um, We stopped doing that. But in any any case, uh, we use use content marketing as an alternative to traditional advertising and it's much cheaper.
0: Yeah, it's certainly a lot cheaper, and I, I think the textbook story that I hear when people talk about ads, at least in the context of fledgling startups, is oh, I poured five hundred or a thousand dollars into Google or Facebook, and nothing came of it. My money just evaporated. And I, I think people just need to put more time into it and do more analysis. Yeah, it requires it
1: requires ongoing. Uh, you, you really have to spend time and look at it and and optimize it. I mean. You have to see which keywords are actually converting. Not all keywords may convert well for you. Some might be too expensive. The the, the CPC cost, the cost per click, might be too expensive to actually make a profit. So you have to disable those depending on
0: how other uh, people are bidding, right? So, um, yeah. So with Instapainting, I know that you don't look at it as any sort of overnight success story. But I'm curious... If it was consistent, steady, smooth sailing from the beginning, or if there was ever a point where you looked at how things were going, and there was some sort of insurmountable challenge in front of you, and you thought that there was a real possibility of you failing,
1: I think in the first year uh, before we had, you know, before I focused on SEO, you know, after TechCrunch, traffic obviously died down after TechCrunch, but I noticed that it was still coming in; people were still coming in some finding us. And eventually later, a long time later, I realized, oh, it was because the TechCrunch article had, it was ranking for, you know, search terms related to getting a photo turned into a painting. The TechCrunch article was, and people were finding the TechCrunch article.
0: And then coming to you Uh, and directly through the TechCrunch article. Yeah.
1: So before, yeah, before that, I was, you know, struggling to grow in any way. And so that that was when I had doubts. You know, that was when it was making about forty thousand, thirty or forty thousand dollars per year for me in a in a, in profit. And I was thinking, well, I can't keep doing this. And I was struggling to find a way to grow. Uh, and that was the first year before I had uh,
0: figured out any
1: growth strategy like SEO or content marketing.
0: It sounds like things were actually kind of bleak until you hit on your SEO strategy. But I'm curious what your goals are for the future? What your approach will be? Because right now you've got SEO kind of figured out. Your content marketing is working wonders. It's just hit after hit. And I want to talk about that a little bit more because it's, it's pretty cool what you've been doing with content marketing. But I'm curious what your goals are for the future. Are you Are just going to double down on those two strategies? or
1: um, Yeah. Uh, constantly looking at new growth channels. And that's probably going to be the main thing. So now the business is mostly automated. You can really focus on growth, right? The point of a technology company is the ability to scale it up to meet any demand or to just scale it up right so we have the ability to scale it up we can you know make 10,000 paintings a month we can make a million paintings a month probably that's (laughs) a lot well I don't know about a million
0: well on that note one of your content marketing articles was actually about the back end of insta painting specifically you went to Dauphin China and also Yiwu and I believe in one of those cities was where you said 60% of the world's oil paintings are made so what was that trip like
1: yeah at some point, I guess, Daphne, China, uh, which is next to Shenzhen, which is next to Hong Kong, is where, 60, according to Wired magazine, 60% of the world's oil paintings are made. Um, it's, not, it's not so much the back end, it's that we, 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 a lot of our suppliers, a lot of our artists are Chinese or, or from China, but not all of them, but m- most of them are. And most of them that dominate the industry that are on Etsy or that are on eBay are Chinese suppliers. Um. so we went to we wanted to go and visit and see how you know what it was like these people that are doing this right and then we also visited some factories as a side so the people doing photo paintings do not work in factories because this is much ex- more expensive work the stuff that goes into factories can sell or is generally abstract artwork and done by just a factory worker that applies a brush kind of like how I just painted the initial orders um, so I went to visit some of these factories just to see, and, you know, some of these factories can do thousands or a hundred thousand pieces of the same painting.
0: Yeah. I saw a photo on your blog yeah, that I was just that a, was, a row of canvases yeah. in this warehouse with the same guy. Going down like yeah. hundreds of paintings with the same brush and just doing the same stroke on painting after painting after painting. And then when he was finished he would turn around and do a new stroke on painting after painting after painting.
1: Yeah. And that that was just uh, there was just something interesting that we saw there. The, those are not actually insta painting painters, but uh, some people think that of course after reading after reading just the title or just looking at the picture, a lot of people don't read the whole article.
0: Uh, yeah, so who is doing the insta painting paintings nowadays? Just, uh,
1: just artists in China, you know, just like literally just artists in China from their home, as it, as it would for, uh, well, there's also other artists that paint from their home. But uh, most of them are, yeah, just artists in China that paint from their home. For the ones that are in China, uh, generally some uh, middleman is involved and they manage, they sub-manage orders across hundreds of artists. Uh, And so they basically use the website for them. Uh, But artists can also directly sign up and we have artists outside of China that are directly signed up uh, because English, so they can directly use the website. Yeah. So we made it so that uh, onboarding artists is really simple process now. They just register and then they can receive orders immediately. And we have checks and balances to make sure they don't screw us. Right that uh, we don't pay them until they finish the painting so if you're planning to take an order and then complete crap right well you're not going to get paid if it's
0: you know obviously way below our quality are those checks and balances something you guys have always had or was there a time in the past where you actually got burned by artists I don't think we've ever been burned by artists generally they're all legitimate and they
1: all actually produce work to the best of their ability at least um, but yeah, we've, we didn't initially have the uh, money back guarantee, uh, uh, but now we, 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 we have that as an additional check and balance against bad artists. You can, even after you've gotten the painting, you don't like it, you can return it for refund
0: and, um, yeah. Cool. So that piece on you going to in China was super interesting and it drove a lot of traffic to your site. And another thing that you've done in the content marketing arena was to, and I mentioned this earlier, you built a robot that could autonomously replicate an artist's painting, and then you blogged about that too. So you can tell us about how you built that robot.
1: Oh, I, had, I already had some experience uh, working with the Arduino and other hardware stuff. So it wasn't a cold start. That's why it only took two weeks. But um, I just decided to reapply some knowledge I already had, which is working with uh, motors and Arduinos and stuff like that. And um, – and I just decided to reapply that to uh, to, to this just to my current business, which right, well. How can I take that and build something that's related to paintings? And then it's basically it was really just like I had a cool idea, and I really wanted to, to try it out, right? So I, was, you know, I had the idea, oh, I can connect the Wacom tablet with this uh, plotting Teddy plotting device, write some software for it to control it, and it should, in theory, be able to let you paint on the Wacom tablet, and then. Replicate it, right? And I really wanted to just see
0: if that would actually work, and it worked pretty much. Um, so the fact the fact that you created this robot and the fact that you went to China and wrote about it do you just sit around all day coming up with ideas like this? Do you have a list that you have brainstormed that you're working off of?
1: Generally, when inspiration strikes me, and um, you know, I'm also in the background constantly thinking about. Well, basically, any time, yeah, inspiration strikes me or opportunity. Thumbs up. I would, I would try to jump on it.
0: Right. I think coming up with ideas, like actively coming up with ideas, is very difficult to do. It's, it's not
1: difficult if you are not trying to come up with ideas, but rather you be open to ideas when they come. You're gonna be opportunistic. You should open your eyes to all possible ideas and not just ones that you want to think about.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask you almost that exact question because one of the things I hear a lot from founders is that they really want to get into entrepreneurship. And they really want to create something, but they just can't come up with an idea. And there's so much advice online for what you should do. There's this whole mantra of of solve your own problem. And then there's what you're saying, which is that you can't actively come up with an idea. You have to let inspiration strike you. And I think it's all frustrating for a lot of people because they're not sure exactly when inspiration is going to strike. Or because they think to themselves, hey, I don't have any unique problems worth solving, so what do I do? So you have a process? And when you were going through your period of developing new products and then trying to work on those before you came up with InstaPainting, what was your process like for coming up with ideas?
1: Well, uh, I definitely wasn't solving my own problem. I, you know, wasn't. It wasn't because I was trying to get a painting, and it wasn't. I wasn't an artist that was trying to get orders either. Um, I mean, my strategy was just to try a lot of ideas. And be open to be open to ideas that other people propose, or be open to ideas that come that, that you may not you know be equipped to do necessarily, right So I was like working on something completely different from selling paintings before. and what was that? was It was an online ordering system for restaurants. so I built all this software to, so that restaurants can pay me something like fifty dollars per month so they get their own online ordering system. Right, um, you know, so they can put their menu online and take payment, and then uh, get an order that gets sent to an iPad. And uh, it was really hard for me to sell. I went manually walking door to door in San Francisco. I even tried to do it in uh, China, um, and I'm pitching restaurants, and it was it was difficult. But I actually got some sales. Right, uh, so I was going to continue doing that. Uh, but then I got an idea, uh, someone inspired me for this instant painting idea, oil painting, a uh, custom oil painting photos idea. And I thought, wow, that sounds like a great idea. I should try it. Right? It's just to be open to ideas when they come in.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because neither one of those were ideas that you, that neither one of those were problems that you were solving for yourself, right? You didn't need to turn photos into paintings, and you didn't especially need a restaurant ordering system. So you were kind of, Violating the, the pattern that I've seen so many times
1: yeah well the, the restaurant system to be fair probably didn't work out as well it was may have failed completely as well so we, don't, we can't really say if that was actually a good strategy but I think the main thing is to be open to good ideas when they come and don't be afraid to actually spend the time to actually that's the hardest part finding time to actually jump on every one of these cool ideas that will come your way
0: Yeah, another thing that's really interesting to me in this whole idea space is this article I read that was written by Isaac Asimov like 50 or 60 years ago. And I keep tweeting about it and trying to get someone to engage me on it because I think it's fun to talk about and it's just so interesting. But he puts forth this idea that in order to come up with an idea, what you're really doing is combining multiple inputs, say two experiences or two otherwise unrelated ideas. And he gives an example. He talks about Charles Darwin and this other guy, I forget the name, who both traveled the world studying the differences between species. And they also both read this guy Malthus' essay on overpopulation and humans. And as a result, they both independently combined these two ideas and independently came up with the theory of evolution at around the same time. And other people, when they saw the theory of evolution, were like, wow, this is so obvious, how can I not have thought about this? But no one had done these two things that Darwin and this other guy had done, and so, no one else came up with that idea.
1: Yeah, that's that's a that's that is a very good way to come up with ideas. I agree. Uh, yeah, you should um, synthesize. You know, especially your expertise in two different areas, you'll have a lot easier time finding new ideas. Even if you are a programmer and then you learn how to do hardware stuff, you you'll have a whole a whole world of new ideas that no one's ever done before regarding hardware stuff. Um, yeah, that's the other ideas, like the robot, for example, it's not that hard to make, but if you've just spent a, I don't know, a one hour, um, or two hours looking into how to do stuff with an Arduino, you'll see that like a whole universe of new ideas is possible. And that's how the, the painting robot came about it. But it's not that hard, right? It's not that hard because it's just some software in the end. I didn't actually have to do much hardware.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think... What's interesting is if you look at people who live in the Bay Area or Silicon Valley, for example, they're reading the same books and living in the same places and doing the same things and following the same Twitter accounts. And consequently, they have ideas that aren't all that creative, right? Like people need to branch out a little bit more and try doing something that other people aren't.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> that's the most thing. You got to think outside uh, box, even just a little bit. You find that it's really easy you know, to to learn some new thing like programming on Arduino, and then and then the cross section between the hardware and the software now will will create a whole new space that's not been filled by other people, because everyone doesn't want the co- cognitive overhead of having to learn a new thing like like hardware. They they think it's hard, but it's not. Right. And then uh, if you just take an hour to do that, you'll be one mile ahead of everyone else because they'll all be stuck in software world building the next uh, restaurant startup.
0: So I want to wrap up by talking about your goals for Instapainting's future. And specifically what I'm interested in is, is Instapainting something that you want to work on forever? Or could you ever see yourself selling the business and moving on to something new?
1: Not at the current point. Current point, there's just too much stuff to do. That uh, I think can grow the business significantly. Uh, focusing on partnerships. We can try exploring partnerships and then try exploring retail uh, experiments. And um, also, we're expanding the, the platform to include more uh, artists who can do creative work. So, we want it to be more of a place where you can just get any type of artist and not just a photo or a painting. And so we've been slowly onboarding more and more artists and, and about to sort of make it open enrollment uh, at some point. Um, it's already a platform, so it doesn't require this huge And a- Another thing I, I want to say is um, if the idea that you're testing takes too long, it's probably not worth it because you're probably wrong about the idea with painting It started out with something that was simple to do, and then once that succeeded, everything that I've added on are mostly simple improvements, small undertakings, right? Just over a long time, right? But this allows you to sort of not waste your time.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, my personal philosophy is that I will not do an idea if it's going to take me more than two or three weeks to implement the prototype. Um, But that said, I think this is a great point to actually end the interview on. Uh, and I've had really a lot of fun talking to you because I think InstaPainting is one of those unique businesses. It's very inspiring to hear about, and the idea behind it is cool. And the fact that you've been able to automate so much of it really is like, you know, my dream for indie hackers. Uh, so I've had fun talking to you, and hopefully, people who are listening have had fun too. So, Chris, can you tell them where they can go to read more about InstaPainting and learn more about what you're doing? Um, you can always see our blog
1: posts at instapainting.com/slash blog or at the bottom of our homepage is links to some blog posts um yeah or go to com, or just google instapainting if anyone has any questions feel free to email me at chris at com, and i'll try to answer the questions
0: If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, I recommend joining myself, Chris, and other indie hackers in discussing this episode on the indiehackers.com forum. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.